Hello, and welcome to the High Reliability Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Martin of Gosselin Martin Associates and the Healthcare Facilities Network. As always, thank you for clicking on this podcast. It is appreciated. Today, I have uh, three guests joining me. Those guests are Jim Campley, Clayton Smith, and Mark Yarrick. All three gentlemen have great experience in healthcare facilities management, and they have joined me today to talk about sustainability and decarbonization and meeting the 2030 date and what that means for them and what that means for their organization and where they are. You may recall that back in the fall of 2023, we did our annual survey. Um, these three gentlemen were kind enough to respond and they were kind enough to join me to talk about their thoughts on sustainability and decarbonization. So their perspectives are more um, as I said, from the impact of their, you know, on their facility and where they are. What I like about these three guests is there's a, they have diverse experience um, presently. So Jim, Jim Campoli was formerly with a very large organization in New Jersey. Now he is with Matheny and Matheny is a specialized hospital for children and adults um, with develop, developmental disabilities. It, it serves it serves children between the age of three and 21. And so, um, you know, a little bit different career step for Jim. And Jim actually talks about that. So Jim comes with that perspective. Clayton Smith is down at Children's Health in Dallas. And um, Clayton's actually been on the network before. So thanks for coming back on, Clayton. Children's Health, um, you know, well-staffed, doing pretty well financially. Um, and so, Clayton's perspective and where Clayton and Children's is, is a little bit different than where Jim is. And then our final guest is Mark Yarrick. Mark is a VP up here in uh, New England at Care New England in Rhode Island. They are a four hospital system. Um, and they've had a little, you know, they've had some challenges relative to finances and they were going to merge with another system. And so Mark is operating, um, very effectively within that environment. And so that's these three people and these three gentlemen, um, I picked them purposely because of that diverse experience that they have. So it's a good conversation. You know, we talk about the survey, we talk about what happens when the power goes out um, in your hospital, what do you do? We talk about the facilities voice at the sustainability table, you know, what how they factor into the discussions overall with the organization. So it is a... Uh, it's a wide-ranging conversation. It originally aired on our healthcare facilities network. And so you can find this in video format uh, on the network. It's called FM Survey Discussion, Sustainability and Decarbonization, Meeting the 2030 Date. I would ask you one favor. If you have not subscribed to our healthcare facilities network, I would ask you to please do so. It's free. Um, we formed the Healthcare Facilities Network to help with help attract people to this profession, to help give our profession of healthcare facilities management a little more visibility, and hopefully try to, in some small way, stem the tide of people leaving and people not coming in. We talk a little bit about that in this podcast as well. So with that, I'm going to stop talking. I will throw it over to our Healthcare Facilities Network and... Um, as I say, thank you for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to the Healthcare Facilities Network. 
I am your host, Peter Martin of Goslin Martin Associates. And as always, thank you for clicking on this episode of the Healthcare Facilities Network. Today's episode, I thank my three guests for joining me. And um, what we're going to do, we're going to talk a little bit about their respondents. I appreciate these gentlemen for responding to our healthcare facility survey that we sent out September and October of 2023. These gentlemen kindly said that they would respond uh, or would be willing to appear on the Healthcare Facilities Network. So I thank them all. I'm going to do a brief intro for each of these gentlemen, and then I'm going to ask them to give a little bit more detail. So the person to my right is Mark Garrick. Mark is the System Vice President of Facilities, Real Estate, and Security at CARE New England a system in Rhode Island. So Rhode Mark Island. is Mark located in Providence, Rhode Island. Down beneath Mark, we have Jim Campley. Jim is the Director of Operations and Services at Matheny Medical and Educational Center located in PPAC, New Jersey. Is that right, Jim? PPAC? Correct. <laughs> I always say that wrong. And down at the lower right, we have returning, a returning guest on the Healthcare Facilities Network, another victim, we have Clayton Smith. Clayton is from Children's Health Dallas. Clayton is a senior vice president of facilities management. So gentlemen, I thank you for appearing. And I'm going to start, I'm going to ask a real simple question. And we'll start with Mark. Guys, can you give a little bit of perspective? How many years you've been working in healthcare facilities management? What have you done? And more importantly, as you look at the landscape of 2023, as we come to the final weeks of 2023, and we move into 2024, how would you describe the state of the discipline today, today. and what you, what you see? Mark, can I begin Mark, with you, please? Sure. Thanks, Peter. Um, and good morning, good afternoon, depending where you folks are located. Uh, I am Mark Yurick, System Vice President, Care New England for Facilities, Real Estate, and Security. I've been in uh, healthcare leadership positions for about 35 years, spent most of my career in the uh, in the uh, management prop. Uh, management, healthcare management company, sorry about that. And this is my first um, in-house job, if you will. I've been here three years. I would say that the, uh, you know, the current state, especially as it uh, relates to, you know, sustainability, I think our biggest issue right now is finances, capital finances, to be quite honest with you, and what the money that we have available to invest. You know, the system would love to continue to growth mode with, you know, maybe a new robot, new CT, some additions to our facilities and renovations. And uh, it, it makes it a little more difficult for us to invest uh, other capital dollars in the uh, in the needs that I have that to kind of uh, head towards a sustainability approach. Excellent. Thank you, Mark. And just a, a quick question, Mark. You said this is your first um, foray kind of into the the owner side. I know many years. Mark and I have been talking for many years. It's the first time I've actually ever seen your face. We always talk over the phone. Same thing for Jim. So it's good to see you. But um how have you found that transition, Mark, from kind of the contracted services provider world where you were for so many years into the lead and you were a leader there as well? Now sure. on the owner side, what's that transition been like for you? You know, it's it's been extremely positive. Um, you know, you always had in the in the contract world, you kind of had two bosses, if you know what I mean. You had to serve the company you worked for, but you also had to serve the client. And sometimes there was a conflict there depending upon what it was. But three years here, and you know, and I say this to people, I love my job and they're like, you love your job? I'm like, yeah, I love my job <laughs> and uh, very happy here. So uh, it's been a nice change. And uh, obviously with your help getting me here, it's been great. Thank you. No, 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 my pleasure. It's great to hear people who say they love their job. <laughs> yeah. Jim, why don't we move down to you, please? 
Sure. I my first management position in healthcare was in 1986. I spent the bulk of my career at University of Medicine and Dentistry, which became Rutgers RBHS, running 10 million square foot in Newark of a diverse higher education medical uh, space. And I've recently retired and moved down here to PPAC with my 130,000 square foot facility. So I'm, I'm back to square one. Uh, it's been a great trip so far. So the biggest problem facing us today is the problem I walked into in 1986. We still refuse to fund life cycling and sustainment costs. It's no different today than it was in 1986. It's been somewhat more complicated today by by the restrictions and the demands that have been put on the industry with climate change um, and with our, our current struggles with staffing and so forth. But the problems are essentially the same as they were 40 years ago when I walked into this. So do you have the answers? Do I have the answers? <laughs> the answers are funding. And but yeah. where does that funding come from? Yeah. yeah. Right. It's it's a simple equation. And so as everybody on this call knows. You know, I've gone from a large, large, large system where funding wasn't so much of an issue. You know, we have 6,000 hospitals in this country, but the bulk of those hospitals are under 200 beds, freestanding yeah. independents that don't have the funds that a Rutgers has. So it's a whole different set of challenges. Yes, yes. So the answers are through some type of subsidies. Jim, can I just ask you... An answer, answer kind of like, like what I'd asked Mark relative to his transition. You've transitioned from a really large organization, Rutgers, down to a small mission-based organization at Matheny. Sometimes you hear organizations can be hesitant to say, hey, why is this person going to leave this monster and come down and work for us? And, you know, why would they want to make that change? So I would just ask you not... How has the transition been for you? And have you enjoyed it going from, again, a large organization down to a you know, beautiful organization in a bucolic spot in New Jersey that's got beautiful views? And you know. So you, you actually know part of this answer. So, but I will tell you this. I was, became aware of an opportunity at Matheny. I was in a career path where I could retire at that time. I chose to retire and I tell people this all the time. I'm here at this 130,000 square foot facility that we have six group homes and we serve children and adults with the most severe complex medical disabilities that there are. And this is by far, not even close to the most rewarding position I've ever had. And the difference is you really see the impact of the human element here. Everybody on the screen is somewhat like me. It's like, oh, yeah, it was great. We built a new 18 May cogen plant and and so forth, right? And we have the we have the largest electric centrifugal chiller on the eastern seaboard, and our connected load is is thirty thousand ton. When you come back here, you realize it's the human element that makes the difference. It's the touching it every day that that makes the difference. So if I tell everybody if there's a lesson to be learned by stepping back, it's don't forget that human element because it's extremely important. Wow, great answer, thanks. Clayton, how about you? Sure, so uh, my name's Clayton Smith, uh, Senior Vice President of Facilities at Children's Health in Dallas. I've been, um, it's my third hospital 
since 2007. I started my career in the construction side of the world and uh, and just kind of fell into healthcare in 2007 and have grown from uh, construction project management into leadership roles and now with multiple different departments of you know EBS and engineering and infrastructure and PNC and um, security and internal transport and you kind of you, you know, you start, you know, you start showing success in one thing and you get more, right? And it's uh, <laughs> kind of how that goes. You're doing a great, you're doing great. Here's some more to do. That's and, right. uh, but with that, you know, I think it's, it's shown some, uh, you know, the diversity of it. You get, you, you, it's easy to kind of geek out into the thing that you know, right? And I, I came out in construction and I felt like I knew that. And then when you move over to that operational side, especially on the facility side, you, you start thinking more along the line of, you know, project life cycle. Uh, and how our, our equipment life cycle and, and how do we make sure we, we make the good decisions during construction that, you know, when you're a construction guy, all you care about is schedule and budget. But when you're on the operations side, I got to make this thing live forever. And um, or at least, you know, until until way down the road and we can make make some replacement plans. Um, I think that's been that's been super helpful to kind of blend that that, that mentality over to the to that operational side, you know. Uh, in pediatrics and in Dallas, we are very, very blessed with a very strong financial performance with a uh, a leadership team who definitely is forward thinking and is is not only are we saying grow, but also grow smart, grow well, grow sustainable. And, and we're in a growth mode right now where we can invest um, in those sustainable measures. Um, on top of that, Super, super blessed to have a very robust infrastructure team with four PEs that just work on the on the engineering side. They're not designers; they are they manage the infrastructure. They keep up with the capital plan, they uh, the capital reinvestment plan for for engineering, and then because because they're they they have the the ability to be in, integrated in that group, and they have that foresight to think about sustainability when an air handler needs to be replaced. Let's look at it from a sustainability lens as well. When a chiller needs to be replaced, let's make sure we're doing the very best we can do while when we get those funds allocated to us. So uh, you know, I, I hear it all across the country when I talk to my, my peer groups that you know we, we our problem is funding, and I kind of I kind of want to shirk back in the corner a little bit and say well, I don't really have that problem um, because we get funded well, but it's you know. I, because we are we are funded well, because we have that, my charge to the team is, well, let's take advantage of this thing and not just lead our organization, but let's start leading the industry and start paving the road for, you know, using newer technologies, using more sustainable technologies. We can become the case study so that someone else may use us as a white paper to justify, you know, a little bit more spend, but here's the benefit on the back end. Sure, sure. Well, thank you. And I think Two things for what Clayton just said. If you are interested back in, I think it was July, we released it in July or right around August when the uh, ASHA annual came out. I did a um, two-part episode with Clayton and one of his managers, Taylor Vaughn. It's called Team Development and Composition. And we go into a little bit more detail and and Clayton talks about that and, and some of the team building they've been able to do down at Children's. And I think that is an interesting class. And then secondly, that's kind of what you just hit on there, Clayton, is what I like about this group. Because you're all kind, you're all in a different spot, and not to make you feel bad, Clayton. You know, you, you you're 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 funded well. Granted, you still have fiduciary responsibility to spend it well, so it's not like you're out there throwing dollars. 
Mark, because I'm up here in, in New England, I know Care New England is, has gone through, you know, some, some uh, uh, what do you call that word I'm looking for? Um, merge, you know, merger talks that merger. have fallen apart. I know you've, you've led through mm-hmm. three years of, of, of at times chaos and you've done a great job and you still <laughs> love your job. So that says a lot. And Jim, you're down at the smaller organization with the, you know, the funding. So it's, it's kind of a, 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 you all come at this from a different perspective. And what we want to start the conversation with is the sustainability and decarbonization that we talked about in the survey. I'm going to share my screen just for a second. Well, I'm going to share it for more than a second, but I want to pull it up. Um, because this was the question that the gentleman um, uh, responded to relative to decarbonization, sustainability, to um, specific to 2030 date only. So there's the big date of 2050 um, that of, of to reduce their emissions, but we're just going to the 2030, the suggested standards by Department of Health and Human Services to reduce their emissions by half, comparing that to a baseline which was established in 2008. So we asked the respondents only specific to the 2030 date. How concerned are you about your organization's ability to do that? Figured, you know what, we're not gonna go out to 2050. Um, the survey replies, and you can see them up here, 41% of respondents were very concerned. 35% of respondents were concerned. So that's just about 76%. We had over 160 responses to this, so a pretty good response. I was really happy with our network for responding. So 76% of people were concerned or very concerned. 11% said they don't think about it. The I will have departed. I just wanted to see if we could pull in some of the retirement people, see you because we did ask a retirement question in here when people were thinking of retiring, but nobody said I will have departed. And then 9% said that they'll meet it by 2030. So that was the that was the breakdown on this um, on this uh, group with us. And Mark, I'll I'll start with you first. And and Mark is concerned about meeting the 2030 impact. Talking about fun to handle the day to day operations. I'm concerned that using sustainable energy for everything will will impact our ability to meet the 96 hour rule for emergency power. So Mark. Tell us about the the very concerned. What what are your and what are your thoughts? What 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 are your concerns? Uh, you know, I think the the first thing is as I had mentioned earlier is funding. Um, and I mean, I am fortunate, I think, to be able to go back to two thousand eight because we have done some things since then with LED lighting and some things like that with parking lots and some of the uh, renovations we've done. It's more of a concern, uh, you know, the last couple of years and moving forward to twenty four twenty five as far as as having that the organization at this point doesn't fund 100% of depreciation. And, uh, you know, we're going into epic, which is a everyone mm. knows the epic EMR is a huge, huge nut to crack mm. as far as, as finances. So competing with those competing with new medical equipment and advances in the industry, we in the facilities world are kind of taking the uh, it's almost as a contingency plan, it's more of an urgent need versus a planning need. And if I could plan, I think that by 2030, we'd, we'd have a you know pretty good plan in place to be able to reach that target. So it's more about uh, probably 23, 24, 25, and maybe we'll have some dollars after that. Um, but the deferred maintenance, and you mentioned the, the merger, uh, Pete, and uh, when we went through the merger talks, we had consultants come in and look at buildings and things. 
our deferred maintenance is pushing $300 million. Um, and that's pretty much through the three main hospitals. Of course, we've got some office buildings we own and things, but primarily it's, you know, it's the three main hospitals. I could tell you right now, it would be better to build a tower new with, with everything new than to try to go back because if I got the money, I, I couldn't spend it before I'd have to spend it again. So, um, you know, that is the, the, the concern. A lot of, um, I give my facilities team a lot of credit. I mean, we've done this for years that have been in the facilities industry. We used to pat ourselves on the back because we could use bale wire and duct tape and keep things together. Now I'm almost like, no, 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 no. We need new, <laughs> we need efficiency uh, to be able to meet that target. So those are, those are kind of it in a nutshell. Um, with respect to the 96 hour rule and, and, and you know, maybe the industry will, will maybe understand what we're trying to do here. I think there's technology out there. I just don't know that it's advanced enough where I could run, you know, a 300 bed hospital on battery power, say for 96 hours, or if you had solar, would it recharge enough to be able to, to do that? So, you know, we have our generators and I think we have to have, in my opinion, some form of a fossil fuel as a, as a backup in an emergency situation. What do you gentlemen think about that? What Mark just said there relative to the 96 hour rule and, and the backup with fossil fuels. Thoughts on that? Uh, we, we are addressing this in a somewhat of a hybrid way, but we made the decision based on our, our grid uh, fluctuations here in Texas uh, and the fact that we are a decoupled grid and we, uh, you know, there we've seen how close we could get to, uh, to not only just losing normal power, intermittently, but for um, extended periods of time, we've committed to microgrids. So we've partnered with a vendor on both of our hospital campuses or on our current hospital campus in Plano and um, from some future work in Dallas to uh, to build microgrids and then back up all of our normal power feed. Now, it's still going to run on natural gas. We can buy some some more, more sustainable fossil fuels, but... Um, um, it, what it basically ends up making our generators are a uh, suspenders or even belt suspenders and an extra pair of pants because um, we anticipate running our generators simply for testing. And we're still required to have it CMS, you know, probably within the next five to 10 years, we, we, we could see microgrids being a replacement. The, the issue with our for us is the 10 second delay. Uh, our vendor doesn't feel comfortable guaranteeing a 10 second delay. Um, just because they understand what that what what that 10 second is actually connected to on the other side. And uh, but it, we, we we partner with them. We we are in lots of talks with them. I've got a, a one of the engineers on my team is um, is probably one of the most knowledgeable people I know about microgrids. And uh, she's working with them very closely on how can we um, not only use the system at this hospital, let's continue to improve it. Like I said before, let, let's invest in these things, improve them so that others can get that same benefit. So I've gone from a freestanding island mode campus to a campus that's on an overhead single circuit. Mm. Okay. And it all comes back to us and to, I believe, for a large group of the smaller, back to what Mark said with the funding. It's we're not going to have the ability to fund battery backup in the interim. And even and we don't have a grid here in PPAC that would support it. So it's a huge, huge challenge for for us and people in our in our situation. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's you know i'm not i'm i'm honestly not the smartest person and especially when it comes to this stuff but i was you know they say all politics is local and so as mark and i were talking before you guys joined we had a storm that rolled through here yesterday that knocked out power so my home's about without power and my daughter and i were driving around town last night and there was just a, there's a lot of darkness there were poles down across streets there were big pines down everybody's in dark and, and i just started to think if we go you know i was thinking about battery powered cars i was like what you know who knows and you know national grid is saying be prepared to be out you know without power for three or four days and i'm thinking to myself okay what do we what happens i knew we were going to be talking to I was like what happens in that eventuality now you guys are running hospitals i just have a car i you know if, in worst case scenario you don't go anywhere but you don't have that excuse or, or you don't have that option and to that point you know, back to the 6,000 hospitals, a huge percentage of these are not in, in metropol metropolises. They're not in urban areas. They're in the PPACs of the, of the world or in the very small communities where the support, the grid is not there to support them. This is an effort that's going to be taken upon themselves to, to get done. So, you know, we have two very different ends of the spectrum. Mm, yeah. Yeah, Mark, go ahead. Yeah, I was gonna say, yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, right now I'm in Rhode Island and as you know, I have a home in Maine. I think about 80% of the state of Maine is without power this morning. And um, I know in Maine, my home went out yesterday about this time and I went on the local website and they're still assessing, you know, yeah. when, when power <laughs> when power will even be back up. So with respect to a car, I, I get it. You're not gonna be able to plug it in and charge it. The hospitals up there, I mean, they've got to have these MOUs in place where, you know, they've got folks coming in to, to refill the generators with their fuel. Um, they've got other things they got to have in place. What do you do with your plumbing? I mean, what do you what do you do with, with I mean, it's not just the power. There's so much that runs off of that with your medical gas systems, your vacuum systems. It, it's everything. Mm. Elevators. So it's not just a, as simple as what are we going to do for, you know, to get the power back on. It's basically trying to run a hospital to keep everything moving without, uh, you know, without the, uh, the power that we have in place. And, and I think I have a good example of the challenges between the large urban and, and the small. Uh, two years ago in Newark, and again, we, we, we were an island unto ourselves, but PSE&G could tell me exactly what the problem was and exactly when it would be restored, okay? I came here a month into my, my trip here. We lost overhead, 2,700 residents on this line. That's it. And it took six hours to, to find the problem. So completely different worlds. Yeah, yeah. Oh, what was that realization for you? I mean, I, what was that, like when that when that moment hit you, what was kind of that realization like for you? So the realization is interesting because it happens a lot where I am so used to being able to say, hey, we're 10 million square foot, we can't shut down, all right? And everybody agrees, you know, mm -hmm. and the university, university hospital in North shutting down is, is channel seven. Yeah. Yeah. With Amy, with her lights blinking, it's not channel seven. So it's, yeah. you know, the relationships have to be built a little bit differently. Yeah. <laughs> Good thing they have a seasoned gentleman and that's, and that's yes, they, build they those relationships. A little bit differently. 
if I, if I could interject here, Peter, yeah. just, just one thing with respect to this. So, you know, we all want to do when power is normal in the middle of the summer, we want to do some control or setbacks or things. And you start talking, about, oh, no, 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 you can't set back the OR. You can't, you know, you got humidity, you got temperatures you need to worry about. Or you can't turn down the lab or you can't do this in SPD. And look at this, they're staring at 24, 48 hours on generator and, and they want everything to work. So we kind of contradict ourselves at times, but uh, when we'd like to save it, we can't. And now we don't have an option. So, <laughs> Clayton, I, I, I wanted to ask you that, you know, Mark, you had talked about humidity. I, I've never asked you before. I'm assuming you got it all squared away, but what's it like in the summer down there? A couple of years ago, what, Dallas was over 100 for like 100 straight days. Or What's that heat, the unrelenting heat and humidity like? How do you deal with it? What do you do? What are some of the, the problems you're encountering? Yeah, um, you know, I came from Florida and I thought I knew what hot and wet felt like uh, until I got to Dallas. And it's not- Dallas it, is worse. The Dallas's heat is considerably worse. Um, you know, we we design, you know, we design these buildings and these systems on a, you know, on a design day of probably around 95 degrees. When you're running 108 sustained, for for weeks or you know three four days and then then you get a break and you're down to 102 um and then that you know i think this last summer we did well over 100 days um over 100 degrees and you know we we try really hard to you know make sure that that's one of the drivers for don't put in don't don't put rooftop equipment because our roofs are running about 140 degrees um and just the ability for that equipment to do what it needs to do to keep the space right. Um, but we still have the same scenario. We're out of compliance on um, on a humidity, you know, super high humidity, super high heat. The system is doing everything it can possibly do. Um, you know, and you have to make that call to your to your OR leadership team or your senior leadership team that, you know, we're giving her, giving her all we got, Captain. Um, and, and, you know, we just need to understand what that means, right? Yeah. You know, are we at 61% humidity in the OR or are we at 80% humidity in the OR? We never get way up in the high range, but it's something that we monitor. We stay on top of. We make sure that we deploy greater EVS work to when we, when we terminal clean that OR. When it's in those high ranges that we do a full terminal clean to make sure there's no moisture in that space at all. But um, yeah, it's, 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 it's it's a struggle. And then all the other things happen, like, right. The, you know, your roofs aren't made to be sitting there just baking like that. Your sidewalks you know, are, are, are the, the soils here in, in North Texas are, uh, are terrible that, you know, with the dry and then the wet and the dry and the wet. And, the, and you know, we don't have as much freeze thaw as you guys may have, but the, the movement of the soil makes a huge difference on, you know, our, our sidewalks, our roads, our foundations, our parking lots. I never really thought of that. I always think of it in the kind of like that freeze thaw cycle that we go through up here. It it's almost the same, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, right? And it, it, it yeah. and it, it it's it's something we just you know we fight with, and you know it's just yet another problem. So, you know, going back to kind of that the sustainability and decarbonization, kind of the issues that you gentlemen have brought up, and I don't know, I know that you know. Many organizations have teams in place to meet some of these goals. Obviously, it's a huge focus with, with all organizations. So I guess in general, and I'm not asking you to not even sell out the organization, but like you're how much, because there's many voices at this table. You're the voice of the building and the OR and the heat and the humidity and, you know, how... Um, 
how vociferous now how involved are you gentlemen and is your not as your input taken but you know what's it like from the facilities perspective to kind of say like we were talking about with the cars hey hold on a sec if we go this route do we have the battery power so what's that process like for you gentlemen to kind of balance that right to to go where the organization wants to go but at the same time keep you safe and and, and keep in check anybody want to take that one well, I'll lead it off because I'm just entering that here. Okay. All right. But based on my past life and based on our new ask, it's going to be that same thing, trying to get funds for life cycling and building sustainment with a different twist because those funds are now going to increase percentage wise. So the ask is going to be larger and the ask is going to be more diverse. And in a lot of cases, the ask is not going to be understood Mm. just because it is a new ask mm. and so to me it's no different than yesterday it's just that ask is slightly different you know that ask and the presentation is slightly different than it was yesterday interesting yeah i, I feel fortunate um i actually chair and to facilitate the capital committee for the organization which is nice to be involved in so i do have a seat at the table and putting the agendas together and things like that monthly um so I do have a voice, um, but I'm also <laughs> reasonable at the same point when, you know, we have three OU presidents or, you know, the CEO of the system at the table saying, look, we really need to go in this direction. We really need this. We're recruiting physicians and they'd like to have that. So it is the, uh, you know, it's the give and take. Um, but again, reading, uh, uh, you know, with what Jim's saying, it, it it's going to take, it's not going to take one year of a couple million dollars. It's going to take a, pardon the pun, a sustainable amount of funding for us to be able to do the sustainability we need to do moving forward. Yeah, I think for, for us, and one of the things I challenged my team to do is it is our job to educate those folks that just as much as we should be invested, I think what, what you said earlier about the human connection of what we do, you know, people do what we do all over the world, but what we do impacts people's lives, right? So it's like, for us, the mission is close to us. So the, making lives better for children. It's easy to get them to go to work for that. But then just as much as I expect my engineering staff to be connected to the nursing side, connecting to the clinical side and understanding what that means and feeling like you need to learn how an OR works. You need to learn how a, 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 a nursing floor works because that allows you to help them more, right? It allows you all to work together. Same thing. It's on us to educate the, the, the staff and specifically in this case, the senior leadership. I'm fortunate here that... Um, our, our CEO and our COO both have uh, a strong background in, uh, on the physical side. Um, and so it's easy to sit down and talk to them. But then I like to do a, an annual kind of state of the facility notice of, you know, here are the big projects we knocked out. Here is the, you know, you know the, the big number of utilities spend and like one thing we, we invest in uh, sustainable energy buy. We 50% of all of our energy bought is bought from wind or solar in Texas. Um, we, we pay a little premium for that, but we're also the largest pediatric hospital buyer in the country. And, um, and you know, kind of hit those high notes to say, this is what we're really doing. All this, you know, all this work we're doing behind the scenes, we want, I want you to see that. And, and I, I get a lot of good feedback from, I had no idea we did all these things. I had no idea, you know, and I think that's, uh, that's our job to educate them on the things that we're experts in just as much as they're educating us on what they're experts in. 
Clayton, is there a, um, you talk about educating, you know, and informing, is there a simple, easy, maybe take, is there a simple time effective tool that you found that gets, because people have short attention spans, they want it quickly, they want to, is there a simple tool that you found is, is effective to convey information quickly to your leadership above? I wish. I wish there was yeah. a dashboard they could just look at and I didn't have to put together a PowerPoint presentation for it. Um, yeah. But that's what I do. I do a PowerPoint presentation and try to make it, you know, not, not, you know, deep into technical speak, but those, those bullet points, high points, you know, things that have changed things, you know, things that we've gone through and also gives me an opportunity to, um, to kind of boost up the, the view of some of my staff. Like I've got, I've got a, a, a very eager staff wanting to learn, wanting to grow. They're presenting, they're writing articles, they're doing those things. Wow. I need that senior leadership team to know that they're that that's it's not it's definitely not me. Um, I got I've got a robust staff that are doing a lot of that stuff, and I want I want them to have this, some of that face time as well. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's a PowerPoint presentation. I wish it was. I wish it was easier, but it's not. Yeah, that's why you know that's why I asked not to put you on the spot. But like, geez, I wonder if there's a simple tool that people can can learn from. No. So one of the one of the best things about going small is I reverse that. It used to be the PowerPoint and then back it up with the conversation when you could get FaceTime. And now I have the constant FaceTime. So the conversations happen and it's a lot easier to get this across than conversation. And then the PowerPoints back it up. And, and to Clayton's point, one of the key things with me now is that I bring my reports into that conversation so that they can grow. And, and they can develop those relationships. So that is a truly tremendous thing about downsizing is kind of reversing that process. <laughs> you know, uh, Jim, you had talked about, it sounds like you guys are at the beginning of the process relative to, so I wanna, the you guys very are- very beginning. So you guys are at opposite end of the spectrum in that Clayton, I think you guys are pretty far along. Jim, can I go to you first though, relative to the very beginning? And what are you, what are you, not what, what are you doing now? How are, how are you developing the pro, like what's going on? So we're at a very unique crossroads where we may be um, relocating our facility and we, we may be staying here. So we're taking both avenues. If we do relocate, it's a lot easier. A lot will be put in place with construction and with, you know, with our choices. Whereas here, kind of working on a five-year plan to get us rolling in the correct uh, direction. We have done some things here in the past. You know, we have the, the typical LED retrofits. You know, we, we've gone to some heat pumps and so forth, but um, we're really in its infancy. And, you know, our, our big challenge is, is really going to be like the scope two and scope three. Our, our, our equipment issues and our direct emissions are not that big a deal, but the scope two and the scope three are really going to be a hard dive for us because that's where dollars matter, you know, and that that's where, you know, it's great. And Clayton, I was in Clayton's position once where our our social responsibility could outweigh our fiscal hmm. uh, responsibility hmm. at some point. But in a smaller organization, that fiscal responsibility is the driving factor and it, it has to be the driving factor. Because at the end of the day, we have 101 people to take care of and their needs come first. Everything else is truly a support service. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that's that's where I think it gets really interesting when your direct care providers 
And when you have to weigh someone's direct care, you know, against a mandate, be it fiscal, be it um, regulatory, that's really where the choices. It's going to be interesting to see when those choices have to be made. Well, and I, and I think it, Clayton, we'll go to you next. From the outside looking in, I think that's what puts you in kind of that difficult position because it's in, it's in, in in theory it's easy for senior leadership to get behind and support because it's that social accountability and responsibility. But now back on this end, where the pay, you know where the tire hits the road, what does that mean? And so it's it's that balance. Clayton, do you what what are your where are you guys? Yeah, I think I think that that's it. you nailed it with social responsibility. We're a big player in this market, and we're a big name, and we you know we have a responsibility as we spend money to either grow facilities or or major capital investments. We should take that on as part of what we do. I think we're starting to see it. You know, again, pediatrics is is strange because our patients are really patient families, right? Hmm. And and so you, you're you're you have a patient that you're working on, but you're really supporting a family unit, and that family unit is starting to speak more about what are you doing to be more sustainable. What you know, and they're asking those questions of us. When we look at our kind of our survey results and things like that, and it's great for us to kind of go back to it again. Though, if 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 you really get down to it, every dollar you spend to be sustainable is a dollar that won't go to patient care. And making sure that, you know, from a from a large capital uh, perspective and how we use all of our capital, that we we balance that well. We could be the we could be the a net zero hospital out here, but we don't have enough MRIs, right? Or we don't have enough whatever that may be to um to be able to support the actual mission of what we're here to do. So I think it's it, it, it we've got to stay balanced. And you know, there are times when we say, hey, we're gonna have to kick that that um that chiller replacement or that boiler replacement or something down the road a little ways because I've got these other needs first. And, and that's why it's it's important that we sit there to be able to, you know, sometimes you argue and fight for the money you need, but also recognizing that we're not here to build the most efficient hospital ever. We're here to take care of these patients. Yeah. Now if we can do we can do a little bit of both at the same time, perfect. And that's where we got to give and take. Yeah, that must be one of those things where the the goals and objectives, you must return a lot to what those goals and objectives are just to keep it centered. And I've got to imagine patient care is going to be that center. Right. Mark, that, no, what about your deferred maintenance? How do you balance those decisions Clayton was just talking about with that backlog of yeah. deferred maintenance? What's what's that process like? Well, if Clayton has a hard time spending some money, just send it up here. we got a place <laughs> to use it. You got a Venmo um, code I can send it to? <laughs> <laughs> So no, uh, you know, it, it, and he's absolutely right. We we are taking care of patients. We've got you know three main hospitals: Women and Infants Hospital, which is basically about eighty five hundred births a year, and we got a forty bed NICU. That's primarily what that hospital does. We have Kent, which is an acute care hospital, and we have Butler, which is behavioral health. So you know, we kind of have a, a broad spectrum there. But again, at the end of the day, we're trying to take care of patients. And that's how I said earlier. I understand. You know, when someone's saying, yeah, but we need an MRI or, yeah, we need a CT or, yeah, we need a robot in the, in, in the OR or something along those lines. But with respect to the facilities um, and the deferred maintenance, it really has been, as I said, contingency. I do submit a five-year plan, and um, but it's very general. Elevators, nurse call, you know, air handlers, boilers. It's not like, you know, boiler number one at this hospital. 
and then I'm asked to kind of prioritize the need, if you will, when I when I put that that number together. So I'm, I'm you know, I'm I guess battling myself or debating myself at times too, because boy, you know, I really think we need to do this nurse call. Yeah, but I really think we need to do this boiler, you know. So they're asking me and I have to prioritize that. And then of course we we live with the prioritization that we've made and yeah. and then look forward to the, you know, the next year or the next quarter, if you will, to be able to say, okay, now we need to go in this direction. Yeah. Do you, are you are you looking relative to the initiatives? For decarbon sustainability, are you looking at it hospital by hospital basis and then measuring it against the system as a whole? How are you doing that with your multiple hospitals? Well, at this point, I've been measuring it system wide. Um, I haven't been doing it by um, individual hospital. We do work with uh, Rhode Island Energy um, with some of the projects that we've done to try to get some incentives or use their uh, expertise to kind of say, hey, if you go in this direction or if you go in that direction, you know, it may be a uh, more efficient way to do it. We can give you some more incentives and things like that. But I do tend to measure it from a system perspective because, you know, one year, one of these hospitals may get based on priorities, significantly more money than one of the others. So I try to do it on a system approach. Okay. And Clayton, are you similar? Yeah. Um, we, we are looking at a, like the two individual hospitals and then how does that roll up to a system level view? Um, so yeah, that, that, that's, I guess, I guess that yes would be the right yes. answer to the question. <laughs> Sometimes yes is that answer, right? What is, yeah. uh, what has been difficult? Has there been anything difficult to get your arms around relative to this topic and the task at hand? Um, has it been one or two things that have been particularly challenging to either get your arms around, and whether that's relative related to like team composition, education, how to go up, you know, how to bite into this big mandate that's, that's out there. Are there one or two particular challenges you've encountered? And if so, how have you, how have you solved for them? Go ahead. Well, I think, <laughs> you know, my approach, I, I kind of wish we were asked <laughs> kind of ahead of time, guys, when do you think you can do this? You know, I mean, I'm looking at, you know, what other regulatory things out there? If you look at pharmacy, pharmacy, seven, nine, seven, 800, you know, we got to do everything over with these pharmacies to get them where they need to be. And in some cases, those are hundreds of thousands of dollars to get them up to speed. And then we got another regulatory thing that may come down the road. And then all of a sudden we have this and you think you've got your five-year plan in place and then you're handed another regulatory requirement or whatever will might be in some and some um you know different priorities go in place so it would have been nice to be asked to have a maybe a seat at that table and, and maybe at the end of the day we did through some type of lobbyist um but I, again it, it it comes down to what i was saying earlier pete if we could get the funding i, I there's no doubt in my mind we could get where we need to be hmm. and and again um i understand it um been doing this a long time and and it's always been a competition with facilities versus everything else Hey, we have just as much impact on the patient care as others. And, and, and some folks may not understand what we have to do. But if we don't have, you know, proper temperatures, we don't have humidities, we don't take care of our pressures or our infection control issues, we'll hear about it on the other side. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, again, I got to lean back into we're fortunate. We, we, we're in a growth plan. So we have the ability to forecast out to what 2030 is going to look like and what we need to do to make that happen. 
but I think, you know, as an industry, I, I think 2030 is going to go by and there's like, like uh, you had said the number before, how many hospitals there are in the country and how many of those are critical access, single standing alone hospitals that don't, I mean, they're doing everything they can do to keep the door open yeah. and to say, yeah, we're going to, we're going to take that big bulk of hospitals. Yeah. My one hospital, my 5 million square feet may be meeting, meeting all the goals, but there's 10, 20 X of that out there in the world who can't. And, and there's really no world. I think, I think um, you had said earlier um, that subsidies are really going to be the only way to, to make that happen. So we're going to, those hospitals are going to have to find, uh, are going to have to be given some incentive, some, um, some subsidy, not punitive because like, uh, what, what else are you going to do? You just make them do it. Well then, all right, we're going to have to close, close a unit, close, you know, I've only got so much, so many dollars to go around. Oh, you know, and an element that I don't like about it. And, you know, we live in a society where somebody's got to be painted black, right? Somebody's got to be painted as the black sheet. And this number that we're responsible for eight to 10% of the carbon in the world, that's not a reality. We're only responsible for our direct emissions. Scope two and scope three is shared by your household, my household, um, and every manufacturer out there. All right. So healthcare is only responsible for that direct admission emissions. What is that real number? It is not 10%, you know, and no one wants to publish that number because then you can't paint the black sheet. So, but we happen to be painted in this instance and um, we'll have to go on from there. What is the number? I don't know what that number is. It'd be a very interesting number to know. And if you can come up with that 10%, you can come up with the direct emissions number. Everybody has an air permit, correct? Yeah. So if you just collected everybody's air permits, it would be a very simple equation. <laughs> you're, you're, you're right there. There is always, uh, we're always painting somebody in this society. Yeah, and we just happen to be the painted ones here. <laughs> because you got the 5 million square feet. <laughs> or you had the 5 million square feet, Jim. Um, you know, the second thing I wanted to talk about and, and is relative to, um, you know, some of the the um, the problems you're having filling staff. And I, and I know, Clayton, you're doing relatively well down there at Children's, but how much, just in general... How much does the and you know the staffing issue feed into the sustainability issue relative to complete? I mean, and I know completing work, just hitting these goals of twenty thirty. Do the two interact, and if so, how do they play together or compete absolutely. against each other? <laughs> no, I mean, if you, if, like again, I've got staff who can dedicate time to being focused on it, and then be, um, uh, and then and, and also drive initiatives towards it. If you are a, a typical hospital out there who's running on a shoestring on their facility side, the director is the one who's who's setting the capital plan. The director is the one who's looking at the emissions. That are, I mean, all of that stuff falls on that one person. There's only so many places they can do. And right. so only so many things they can really focus their time on. And back to what we said before, our job is to keep it running so we can provide patient care. And that other stuff out there, I'd love to be able to do. And I may have a... Um, I may have a, a passion for sustainability. Well, that means that I'm going to not do something else. And maybe that's not growing my team like I should. 
right? Or not, you know, not being as engaged on the patient side, but it's all a give and take. And there's only so many hours in a day and having the right team that can have the time to focus on that is the only way that's going to be successful. If you, again, I, I've worked in those critical access hospitals or, uh, and they um, like you, you do it all. And mm-hmm. when you bring up this, this forward thinking, what we're we going to do in five years, like, dude, I don't know what I'm gonna do tomorrow. <laughs> um, and, and, and try to get, you know, I think, I think that's, that's the other challenge when you look at all of the, the, the bulk of the hospital square footage in this country are those critical access hospitals. And, and you're asking them to operate like, like, like I can, because I have, I have that luxury and they don't have the ability, not, not that they don't have the, the, the drive or the want to, you just don't have the resources to do it. I have time to think about things that other people don't have time to think about because I've got other people thinking about things I used to think about. <laughs> so right. I, it, and I, you know, I, we, we've, we've done some recruitments for critical access hospitals and not only are you wearing all those hats, but then sometimes you might be the one who's driving 120 miles between your two facilities or driving to the Home Depot to get what you need. I mean, it's, it's not like you're located in a central spot where you're just running to the hardware store. You're going to your, you know, your 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 peer hospital. Jim, I'm sorry, I jumped. Oh no, that's Peter. We have a line here. I I believe you've met Melissa. Yes. Yes. So we have a line with Melissa when she'll ask me a question. I go, well, I used to have somebody to do that. <laughs> <laughs> I said, so I guess that's you or I now. <laughs> so and that comes up quite often. We call it the somebody line. What do you, the somebody line? Somebody line, yes. Because every time she says something's due, I said, you know, I used to have somebody to do that for me. Okay. <laughs> uh, What's you it know, like? uh, if, yeah. if I could, Peter, uh, Clayton said it very well. And it sounds like um, he's kind of lived the life that that we're living now. And um, and he's right. I have facilities directors that, you know, are, are doing probably some safety specs, some emergency management things. It's not solely on, on the facility side that they're doing it. Um, but I'll tell you, my, my concern is more about where are we going to be in 10 years? I know we talk about nursing shortage. We talk about physician shortage. We talk about the stress that are on some of these clinical jobs and no disrespect to them. But I think the facilities directors are, are quite frankly, healthcare, a, a dying breed. And I think that's unfortunate. I, um, you know, I'm probably looking at retirement, you know, in five years or ish. But I can tell you right now, my three facilities directors may be gone before I am. And, uh, you know, and where are we going to fill those positions? And if there are 6,000 hospitals, give or take, where are all these people coming from? Because, you know, the great resignation, uh, uh, I can tell you, there are people that would go do education or manufacturing any day of the week than be dealing with a facilities director who's got 16,000 regulatory <laughs> requirements, whatever it is from you know, joint commission to CMS to ASHRAE and on and on. So I think they're getting burned out as well. Well, you know, I talked to you, you're exactly right. I mean, I talked to a lot of them and that's exactly what you're hearing. And that's part of the reason people ask us all the time, you're still recruiting and we are still recruiting, but I'm putting a lot of focus on this network because it's a huge issue. I mean, if you don't have people, what do you do? I mean, we have hospitals at the cornerstone of every community in America. Who's running them? And if you guys leave, what are you left with? So we can keep talking about it, but we got to do something. And whether that's you know, reaching out to that next generation, publicizing that this career exists. I mean, listen, you guys are talking about everything you have to do, yet 
you're still saying you love doing it. Hmm. Think about that. <laughs> so, you know, so people need to know that. And and to just to publicize, Jim, I, I jumped in that little soapbox. Oh, no, no, no problem. Over to you. <laughs> but um, just to build on that, I, I thought about this last night. I happened to be married to a nurse for a very long period of time. I entered the healthcare industry with the building collapse of 1984. I was a plumber by trade. And when I became a plumber at Dover General Hospital, I was making 5% more than any RN at Dover General Hospital. Today, our average nurses in New Jersey are making 30% more than our average skilled tradespeople. Mm. So it's, you know, we still are support services and we can say all we want about mentoring and bring people, bringing people in until we somewhat change the finances of this. You know, we're always going to have people looking at, at other opportunities other than facilities management, be it healthcare, higher ed or whatever. So, and I think this is where we really need to focus that bottom up, because if we're going to raise from the bottom, we need a bottom to raise. Yeah, right. And we, we don't have that bottom. When I left Rutgers, we were down, I was down approximately 24 positions in Newark. And we had gone from, we would post a plumber's job in say 2014, we would get 70, 80 applicants. You know, after the pandemic, we're getting four and five. Mm-hmm. So it, it's gotta be a bottom up effort. Yeah. 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 We definitely lean into, I think you make a great point about the comparison to the nurses, to the, the skilled trade folks and, 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 and that, that swing definitely happened. Right. Um, One of the things that we're fortunate to lean into is we've got a, our, our HR team has, has made a benefit package mainly to recruit nurses because we had such a nursing shortage after the pandemic Um, that, you know, focused on things like, like uh, maternity leave, uh, uh, caregiver leave, uh, education reimbursement at at 100%, all of those things trying to grab nurses. And we turn around and take it to those, you know, same thing, right? You were married to a nurse. A lot of, happens to be a lot of tradespeople end up being, you know, in that same demographic. And we say, hey, we can give you all those same benefits that we give those nurses and, and be able to, um, lean into that to where we can re- attract that guy. You know, I think our, our sweet spot is that, you know, 20, late 20s, early 30s, been working in the field for a long time and it's 108 degrees for 100 days straight in, in, in the summertime. And like, hey, we're air conditioned all yeah. the time. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> it's easy. Then they're like, oh, wow. And you get you, you have a regular schedule. You work, you know, you don't get rained out. You, you know, you don't, you know, all of those things plus benefits. And, you know, it's it's funny when I when I talk about that with some of our, um, our tradespeople, they're like, oh yeah, that's a hundred percent why I'm here. I could have made, I can make more money out on a truck, but I know exactly what I'm gonna get paid every day. I know exactly where I need to be. I've got all of this stuff around me that I wouldn't have out there. And, um, I think we, we've, you know, we've lost a few to go do that because they're, they're chasing the dollar bill. But the, you know, once you get into that kind of into a groove of your life and I've got a family, I've got kids or I'm going to grow a family leaning into those benefits has been what's helped us. But, um, it, you know, helped us, but we have the exact same issue you have. We put a post plumber position. We may get four applicants, but you know, we've got to go find them because our HR team is going to post it on LinkedIn or LinkedIn or, or Indeed, and then expect us to get a whole flood of applicants. Well, plumbers, most plumbers, don't look at Indeed for a job. Hmm. 
Right. And so I, it's, it's interesting because it's kind of what's old is new again. I went, I stayed in healthcare because at that time, I don't know if anybody was in healthcare in the eighties, you didn't pay for health insurance. Mm -hmm. You, we had benefits that no one else had. And that was right. a huge attraction. Then over the course of time, and I think this happened more on a regional basis, you know, with the tri-state area being one of the worst, <laughs> you started losing those benefits because benefits became expensive. And now we're trying to get them back in. And I agree with you. One of my lines is when I, when I was at Rutgers was we don't offer the same benefits anymore. We're not losing people for the salary. We're losing because we don't give them that solid benefit package anymore. Yeah, I'm going to be doing uh, an upcoming episode talking to a VP of HR from outside of healthcare about work-life balance and what they do and how they do the remote stuff. Only because I think it's, in, you know, Grant, you guys can't copy it, you know, verbatim, but just to get some other thoughts, what are other people doing? What might you be able to do? Because that's certainly a benefit too. We're coming up against the clock. So what I want to do, this went by really fast. Um, anything... <laughs> Anything to that we didn't touch upon or anything that you had prepared you wanted to get to relative to sustainability employee? And if the answer is no, the answer is no. But since it kind of came up really quickly, I just want to give you guys last chance. Anything you want to add to the discussion that we didn't touch on? I would just say thank you for the opportunity, uh, Peter. I'm sure there's many folks out there that are, are dealing with the things that we're dealing with and, and hopefully been able to let uh, shed a little bit of light for them. Yeah. Yeah, I second that. I really appreciate this opportunity. I think it's always funny when we get a bunch of facility guys in a room together. We we all have basically the same story, but we love telling them. <laughs> no, and thank you. It was very enjoyable. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I knew you guys would uh I knew you would talk well because I kind of know you all independently. So I appreciate that. So our guest, Mark Garrick, Clayton Smith, Jim Campbelly, thank you so much for your time. Peter Martin from the Healthcare Facilities Network, as always, thank you for watching and have a great day.